I would like to speak to you this morning on life's greatest goal. Life's greatest goal. <clears throat> Please bow your heads in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your presence among us. Father, we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus Christ that we could come right into your presence. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. And all that you are never changes in your love, your goodness, your grace. Your holiness, it's the same. It never betters. It never worsens. It remains the same. And You are that great standard, Lord. And help us, O God, in this time by Your blessed Holy Spirit to open our eyes and help us to see the things that we've never seen before, Lord, if we missed it because so many times we do miss it. And that's why we need the Spirit of God to teach us. So Lord, I just pray now to speak to us through Your Word and teach us, O oh God, Thy truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because everything that You are and You have revealed in Him, He has come and shown us how You're like. So Father, we thank You for this time that we could come to Your Word Lord, I ask You to help myself, Lord, as I speak. Lord, may we receive this Word this morning, not as a man preaching, but God is Your Word. It's God, because this is Your Word. This is Your authority. And Lord, if there's going to be change, the change needs to be in us to make us more like Jesus Christ. So Father, I pray that by your blessed Holy Spirit, you would help us this morning. For we will give you the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Out of curiosity, I typed in my iPhone the question, and I went under Google. You can just about Google anything nowadays, and you get an answer, right? And the question I typed in was, what are the most important goals in life? What are the most important goals in life? Now, first of all, I'm going to give you a secular perspective. The secular perspective is that this is what they said, and it came up on my phone, quote, with this in mind, here are the ten primary goals to accomplish as you plan for life in the next ten years. One, marriage and family, harmony. Two, proper mindset and balance. Three, commitment to improved physical health. Four, career passion and personal satisfaction. Five, develop empathy and gentleness. Six, financial stability. You know that one's going to be in there. Now, this is a secular perspective. Seven, service and social responsibility. Eight, stress-busting leisure time. Nine, continuing education. And last, 10, expanding and growth, growing in faith. And they don't tell you exactly what your faith is in, of course. All the religions of the world, they probably include that. Another list came up right underneath it. Speaks of seven meaningful goals in life. This is still from a secular perspective. Number one, develop your passion into a career. Two, get good at being you. 
Isn't that common today? Three, invest in self-education. Four, cultivate good habits. Five, clean up your diet. Six, travel for experience. Seven, cultivate commitment and relationships. Now, let me say this. Just That's exactly the kind of carnal answers that we would expect from the world, right? That are really, if you notice, it's focused on self. It's man-centered. It's humanism. It's all about self, what you can do, about you, you, you. So that's, that's expected from the natural man. Now, I changed up the question and typed in something different in my phone. And like I said, we expect that from the secular perspective. So now I typed in the question and Googled it, 20 goals every Christian should set. Now listen to this, 20 goals every Christian should set. And uh, at the intro of this, it was, there was a lot of words that was being said. This is written by a homeschool woman that has a major um, uh, degree in psychology. Isn't that something? Yeah, so you know where this is going. But I will say this, uh, to give her credit, there are some legit uh, goals for the Christian here, but I just wanted to, wanted to type this in and see what would come up. So at the intro, they basically gave reasons for setting goals and pursuing them for the new year. Quote, this is what came up, whether we're talking about a personal lives, spiritual lives, relationships, our character, or our future, we need to ask ourselves what kind of people we want to be. And that's got some truth to it. Um, Having goals can center us, she says, keep our eyes on Christ and encourage us to grow. Without goals, we have no reason to press on and we have and we can flounder, feel lost, or lose track of our purpose. And if you never considered making goals, she says, in the new year, use this as a starting point of and personalize these goals for your own circumstances. And here are the 20 goals that she put down. She's a prolific writer, and this is interesting. Number one, goal number one is know what you believe. Know what you believe. I, I can go along with that. We've got to know the Bible, right? But she doesn't actually go into detail specifics. Two, the second goal is be real. Be real. In other words, be genuine. Don't, be pretend, don't pretend to be something that you're not. Be real. Okay, I can get that. The third was put God first. It's interesting that she put that one third. That's psychology. Absolutely. Fourth, stay strong. Stay strong by staying dressed in the armor of God based upon Ephesians 6. And she, she, I'm, yeah, I'm just giving you the bullet points here. She says a lot in Scripture. She gives Scripture and a little devotion. And then in seven, the seventh goal is be secure in your place as a child of God. Security. Eight, memorize God's Word. That's a legit goal. Nine, walk the line and holding to your beliefs, but leaving judgment up to God. That's interesting. It almost said, I gather from that, don't be judgmental. In other words, uh, what about what Jesus said? Uh, You are to judge spiritual things. A spiritual man judges all things, really. So, I don't know where she's going with that. But anyway, the tenth goal is be the kind of friend that you would like to have. (laughs) Eleven, um, uh, 
basically uh, turn to God first, not last. Let him be the last resort, let him be the first resort. Twelfth goal is be a person of integrity. Thirteen, be teachable. Fourteen, aim for financial stability. (laughs) There's that financial stability again. Fifteen, seek wisdom. Sixteen, live without fear. Seventeen, prioritize your life. Eighteen, live in the moment. Nineteen, strive to be a servant. And twenty, leave a legacy. Now, let me say this about this list. (laughs) It comes from the author. She's from Dallas, Texas. And like I said, she's got a degree in psychology. She's a homeschool mom and... And this is basically coming from a Christian perspective, if, if you were to look this up. I definitely want to be careful here in saying this. That I don't want to be too negative and nitpicky and being overly critical uh, toward her. But I want to commend her for one thing. She makes a very good effort, at least, in trying to be biblical. <laughs> so there are some legit uh, goals in that list. Focused to some degree, yet let me say that this is an all earnest and truth. This list falls desperately short of what the Bible really speaks of our goals should be. Now, let me jump to another woman that she wrote several hymns back in the 1800s. She's not heard of very much. She lived in the 1800s. Her name was Frances Brooke. She had an interest in missions very deeply. Her father was uh, a minister of the gospel, but in England. But because of health issues and weaknesses, which when I looked this up, uh, it didn't go into specifics of her health issues. It just said she was sickly. She could not labor in the foreign mission field as her two sisters did. But God used her in a mighty way in writing a wonderful hymn that I don't think we've ever sung, and you don't hear it sung very much in the church anymore. And I know I've, I've heard it quoted by Leonard Ravenhill quite often, but it's a wonderful hymn. And the name of the hymn is, My Goal is God Himself. Now, beloved, God is enough. God is enough. That, he should be our goal. And listen to what she says in this wonderful little hymn that summarizes in a deep, simple, wonderful way what the greatest goal is. And that goal should be God to every born-again Christian. The first stanza says this, My goal is God Himself, not joy, nor peace, nor even blessing, but Himself, my God. Tis His to lead me there, not mine, but His. At any cost, dear Lord, by any road. It's a prayer, too. She's, you could tell she's praying this. Second stanza. So faith bounds forward to its goal in God, and love can trust her Lord to lead her there. Upheld by Him, my soul is following hard till God hath fulfilled my deepest prayer. Third stanza. No matter if the way be sometimes dark, no matter though the cost be oft times great, he knoweth how I best shall reach the mark. The way that leads to him must needs be straight. Fourth stanza. And I love this one. 
Listen to the theology in this. You gather something very God-centered. One thing I know, I cannot say Him nay. One thing I do, I press towards my Lord. And in the glory, there my great reward. I'm sorry, my God, my glory here from day to day. In the glory, there my great reward. Now we're diving into some deep waters. Because we're going into God, and God alone, and He is sufficient. He's more than enough. To pursue God alone for who He is, is sufficient. He's the giver, rather than just the gifts that we're to look at, to look to. One Puritan said, to love the mercy of God rather than just the blessings of His mercies. R.C. Sproul said it this way, natural man's sin is precisely this. He wants the benefits of God without God Himself. We see this everywhere. And the list that I basically gave basically tells that of what I looked up in Google. One of the greatest needs of the church today, beloved, is what Frederick Faber and A.W. Tozer read this man quite often, but he was a great poet, great hymn writer. Frederick Faber called it a jubilant pining and a longing for God. A jubilant pining and a longing for God. The lack of desire, he said, is the ill of all ills. Many thousands through it, the dark pathway have trod, the blossom, the wine of predestined wills is a jubilant pining and a longing for God. God loves to be longed for. He loves to be sought. For He sought us Himself with such longing and love. He died for desire of us, marvelous thought. And He longs for us now to be with Him above. That's Frederick Faber. A.W. Tozer said this, I believe... That God wants us to long for Him with a longing that will become love sickness. Love sickness. That will become a wound to our spirits. To keep us always moving toward Him. Always finding, always seeking, always having, always desiring. So the earth becomes less and less valuable and heaven gets closer as we move into God and up into Christ. End quote. I love these men. An unquenchable desire, a longing, and a thirst for God. Oh, beloved, hand the new t- and uh, when we go into the Old Testament, we read in the Bible, there was such a man that God raised up that had this jubilant pining and a longing for God. His name was David. David means beloved of the Lord. Actually, the commentary of David is found in Acts 13.22 that Luke pins by the Spirit of God and says, after removing Saul, he made David their king. And he testified concerning him, and this is what God had to say about David. I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And he would do everything I want him to do. You know, isn't that amazing? How would you like to have God say that about you? That was God's commentary on David. And though David, as we know, would fail God many times in many sins, 
He always came back with true repentance and brokenness. He was restored. And though He would bear the consequences of the sword that would never depart from His house, as God spoke to him after he sinned, the prophet Nathan spoke to him. This man David, a man after God's own heart, loved the Lord and had a desire for God Himself. When we open up the book of Psalms, we have a Psalter. The Psalter of the Old Testament. And most of the Psalms that are found there is by the sweet singer of Israel, David himself. Now you could look this up and look at commentaries. I looked at Spurgeon's notes on the treasury of David. The Psalm 42 actually... And you can go with me there, please. And that's the psalm we're going to look at this morning. Psalm 42 does not necessarily give us who the writer is, but it's Davidic and the writing because we see David all over it. Psalm 42, we see and read a man that had unquenchable thirst for God. What I'd like to speak to you on this morning that David had a longing for God, yearning for God. And this is my outline I'd like to give to you. David had a panting soul. He had a panting soul, verse 1 and 2. A panting soul. Second, we see in verse 3 and 4, David had a pouring soul. A pouring soul. And third... In verse 5, we see David had a prevailing despondent soul. A prevailing despondent soul. And fourth, we will see that David had a praising soul. A panting soul, a pouring soul, a prevailing despondent soul, and a praising soul. Basically, it's summarized in this chapter that David's life's goal and greatest goal was God Himself, which is enough. This should be for every Christian as well. God Himself. I also want to flip that around a little bit because if the Christian is to have God as their goal, God's goal for us is to conform us into the image of His dear Son, Jesus Christ. According to Romans 8.29, so many people memorize 8.28, which is a wonderful text, but we cannot leave out 8.29. 828 says, and we know that all things work together for the good to them that love God, and to them that are called according to His purpose. But 829 says, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed. That's the, that's the word, conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. So David has a jubilant longing and a pining after God. Now, And Psalm 42 is like I said, we see a man after God's own heart given an honest prayer in a true, I'm sorry, in a time of discouragement. He's discouraged within this chapter. It first begins, if you notice, before we get into the word, the scriptures itself, it says to the chief musician, 
masculine, for the sons of Korah. For the sons of Korah. Let me give you a little background on the sons of Korah so we can actually understand the background of this psalm. The sons of Korah were Levites. They were Levites. They were from the family of Kohath. And by David's time, it seems that they served in the the musical aspect of the temple worship. They were worshipers that praised God in the temple. And according to 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 29, as there was a great battle that King Jehoshaphat was engaged in, that God sent these Levites from the sons of Korah, the sons of Korah, the Sekulathites, and of the sons of the Korahites, stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. So they were worshipers that were sent on the front line to praise God. Now, there's something else we can read about Korah. If you notice in the... Uh, the Pentateuch and the early writings, Numbers, Deuteronomy, led a rebellion of 250 community leaders against Moses during the wilderness experience in the days of Exodus. And we see that in Exodus. God judged Korah and his leaders, and they all died. But the sons of Korah remained. They remained. So Korah was judged but the sons remained. Perhaps they were so grateful for this great mercy that they became notable in Israel for praising God. So that gives us a little background here. Now, even though it doesn't say David, I I truly believe that this is David's pen. But we do have for for the sons of Korah, for the sons of Korah to sing, this is a psalter, this is a song. And it's a wonderful song. Notice with me, in chapter 42, in verse 1 and 2. As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. And then he gives a question. When shall I come and appear before God? When shall I come and appear before God? What a question. His soul is thirsty for God, the living God. God is the God of the living. When shall I come and appear for God, before God? A longing to be in God's presence. As the deer, the heart, means the hind, panteth for the flowing streams of water. David's soul is thirsty for God, for the living God. The deer's weakness here aggravates her thirst for water. For water. To pant. I love that word. Pant. Pant basically means to yearn, to have a longing after, a yearning for, a deep, heartfelt desire that goes deep. After the water brooks. After the water brooks. Literally, upon the water brooks in the original. So the water brooks, the desire hangs over and is resting upon its object. Upon its object. After thee, O God. God is that object. Resting upon God. 
There's a Hebrew preposition here that means towards thee. In other words, that's the compass. That's the mark. That's the goal. Is God Himself. So David had a deep, heartfelt, keen desire towards God in the sanctuary where he met with God and God met with him. The heart, the deer, is supposed to be thirsty. Thirsty. And it's a dry and a thirsty land where no water is. Just as David was without access to the channels of spiritual water in Jerusalem, in its context, David was excommunicated and cut off from the sanctuary of God. But his desire and longing was to be in that sanctuary to meet with God and where God met with him. David had that, as Frederick Faber said, a jubilant pining and a longing for God himself. Is that enough? Is that not enough? God is enough. I don't have all these lists. God should be everything. David had that jubilant longing pining after God. Spurgeon in the treasury of David. I got, it's, it's kind of a lengthy quote here, but I, I had to put, it, put this all down. But stay with me. This is very good. Spurgeon said this about this text. There's something to be lamented in this state of mind. For if the psalmist had maintained unbroken communion with God, his God, he would have not been so much panting after him as enjoying him. It is deeply to be deplored that we, who sometimes bask in the sunshine of God's countenance, cannot live so as always to enjoy it. And then, listen to these questions Spurgeon brings to us. Why do we wonder? Why do we grieve His Holy Spirit? Why do we turn aside from God our exceeding joy? Why do we provoke Him to jealousy? Cause Him to make us grope in darkness and sigh out of a, lo- of a lonely and desolate heart. There is much of an evil heart, He says, of unbelief in departing from the living God. Therefore, we must not too much congratulate ourselves, for though it is a sign of divine grace to pant after God as the deer pants for the water brooks, yet... It is an equally certain sign of a need of more grace and the loss of a privilege that we should always strive to possess. And he goes on to say this, as a man can bear hunger much longer than he can bear thirst, he may continue without food for days, but not without drink. So the psalmist mentions the thirstiest creature and the most ardent of the natural passions. He does not say, I, so I long for my former grandeur, or so I long for my friend, but so I long for you, O God. And he says this, his soul had only one longing, one thirst. And every power and every passion had united itself to that one desire. End quote. Isn't that wonderful? Listen to those questions. Soul searching. 
Verse 2 says, My soul thirsted for God. Now look at the panting soul here. My soul thirsted for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I like that phrase, the living God. Jesus said that. He told the Pharisees that God, He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. David said in Psalm 63, O God, Thou art my God, early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for Thee in a dry and a thirsty land where no water is to see Thy power and Thy glory as I have seen Thee in the sanctuary. To have that kind of thirst for God. Don't we need this in the church today? Don't we need this as we go into the new year? That we would pursue God and know God and know Jesus Christ more than anything else. To know Him personally. That's my desire, beloved. Psalm 84, 2. My soul longeth. Notice that. My soul my soul, my soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart, my flesh cry out for the living God. Psalm 143, 6. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee like a thirsty land. And then he puts a seal on it. Meditate on it. A seal of God Himself knows how to satisfy that unquenchable thirst more than anyone else. And only, by the way, only God can satisfy that thirst that we have deep within the human soul. But sin has separated us. And that's why we have to deal with our sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. I love Isaiah 41, 17, 18 because God actually speaks Himself here through the prophet Isaiah and He gives the remedy. He says, when the poor... I love this. Notice this. The poor, not the rich. Those that are poor in spirit and the needy. Poor and needy. Those two going together. We must be poor. We must be needy in spirit. He's not talking about physically here. He's talking... The poor in spirit, needy in spirit, and seek, they seek water. Are you seeking water? And there's none. And their tongue faileth for thirst. It's almost like you see the picture. Their tongue is dry and parched for thirst. And God says this, I, the Lord, will hear them, and I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in the high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys, and I will make a wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Isn't that wonderful how God will provide it? Even though it's a desert, a desolate place, and where there's no water, God will create it. I love John chapter 2, don't you? When... You had the Samaritan woman that's rejected, a prostitute, comes to Jesus Christ and at the well of Jacob and she comes and Jesus starts the conversation up by saying, give me a drink of water. And then in verse 10, 
Jesus says, if thou knewest the gift of God. Don't you love this? If thou knewest the gift of God. If you knew who it really was. And who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink. Thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. I love that. Only Jesus can satisfy. Yes. He asked for a drink of water, and then he ends up giving a well. A well that never will run dry. Hallelujah. One that satisfies the thirsty soul. I'm so thankful today that only Jesus can satisfy. This is He is what this old world needs. The thirsty down deep and they don't know what they're thirsty for. And that's why Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew it, you got to know. David asked the question, when, when shall I come and appear before God? When, when? For David to be separated from God in the sanctuary and his blessed fellowship, even for a, a, a time, seemed to be the very height of misery for David. Oh, beloved, when, <laughs> when shall this separation come to an end? David's longing and his yearning desire to appear before the face of God, before God's countenance, before the face of God, to behold Him, to adore Him, to worship Him. He had a panting soul. He had a panting soul. Next we see he had a pouring soul. Look at verse 3 and 4. My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? And when I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the, whole, with the voice of joy and praise with a multitude that kept holy day. This meant something to David. But this is the sanctuary, the house of God. He went with the multitude to keep holy day. But he remembered these things about his tears has been his meat night, day and night. I want you to think about that. This man was broken. He had a broken and a contrite spirit. God does not despise. Here in verse 3 and 4, we see a sevenfold depression of the soul. He was depressed. He was depressed. I don't know about you. I, I fight depression at times, don't you? But we must encourage ourselves in the Lord God as David did. My tears have been my meat day and night while they, can, while they continually say to me, where is thy God? Where is God in your trouble? Where is God? When's He going to show up? He was depressed. It caused him to cry. He was broken. Psalm 80, which is a psalm of Asaph, in verse 5 says this, Thou feedest them with the bread of tears. The bread of tears. We eat bread, right? Tears 
was basically what they lived of. That was their food. The tears. Well, you're talking about brokenness. And give us them tears to drink in great measure. And give us them tears to drink in great measure. Psalm 126, 5 and 6 says that they, sow in, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. David was this kind of man. He was broken. Beloved, David was upset that he could not eat food, but he did have food. It was his tears. That was his bread, day and night. This was a man that was broken up because he could not get to the sanctuary. He was excommunicated. God does. God is concerned. He desires us to have a broken and a contrite heart. That should be a prayer for us when we go into the new year. God, break my heart, melt my heart, wound my spirit. Jesus said it in, in, in Sermon on the Mount as He begins to be as He begins. To speak about the Beatitudes in the first one he says in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. David knew how to pour out his soul to God. And notice if you read in First and 2 Samuel when you see the life of David. He was a man that poured out his soul to God. While they continually say all the day unto me. Where is thy God? Where is thy God? This echoed and rang in his ear, his, his ear of his thirsty soul and brought about his despondency. And he says this, when I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. I pour out my soul in me for I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God. He was cut off from it. It wounded him. He was broken. He pours out his soul implying to give loose rein to all his sorrows he had. His sorrows. You know, think of this. In deep sorrow, one's tendency is to call to mind the remembrance of better things that's gone by. That's the truth. We've been there, haven't we? And so to increase one's pain by brooding over it. The pain increases. The question is, is this good for our soul? Is it good for our soul? Absolutely, yes. According to the Word of God. Because sorrow drives us to God. Brokenness drives us to God, doesn't it? This is why Solomon says it's better to go into the house of mourning than the uh, laughter. It's sobering. It always sobers me when I go to a funeral. And I've been to many of them. But there's something sobering about it. Because it gets your mind off the things that's going to pass away and it gets your mind on things of eternal. That's helpful. Lamentations, chapter 3, 19 through 24. Jeremiah, there's a, there's a weeping prophet right there. He, he was broken. He said this, remembering mine affliction and my misery. Remembering it. And then he says, the wormwood and the gall. And then he speaks about his soul. My soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. 
They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And then he says this. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. The Lord is my portion. Therefore I will hope in Him. Well, next we see David had a prevailing despondent soul. A prevailing despondent soul. Look at verse 5 and 6. He says this, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Look at the questions. Why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. Don't you pay close attention to that now. His countenance. Then he says in verse 6, Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I will remember thee from the land of Jordan and of the Hermonites from the hill Mazar. You know, David pours out his soul before God. Here he has a prevailing despondent soul. And he's asking questions. Have you ever heard people tell you that it's not good to ask questions before God? That is so unscriptural. (laughs) God knows your heart. He knows what you're going to say anyway. Give Him the questions. Anybody that tells you that doesn't know their Bible. You can mark that down. Because right here in the Word of God, we read in the Bible, there are literally, if you count, I counted them. 13 questions that David asked. 13. From Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. And by the way, Psalm 42 and 43 are basically connected. He's asking God why. He's asking God where. He's asking God when. If you look in verse 1, when. Verse 3, where. Verse 10, where. Verse 5, verse 11. Chapter 43, verse 5. Why, why, why. Verse 9. Chapter 43, verse 2, why, why? Verse 5, verse 11, and chapter 43, verse 5, why, 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 why? It's good to ask questions. Verse 1, David's heart longs after God because he's at his community from the sanctuary. Verse 3 and verse 10, David's enemies questions God's existence and presence, causing and producing despondency. It produces discouragement. It it produces depression and despair to a point where it's literally grief to him and he's broken and he's wounded. Verse 5, verse 11, and chapter 43, verse 5 says a lot because it speaks about his soul is downcast. Notice that word, downcast. He is down. He is at the bottom of the barrel. He's despondent. He's hurting. He's broken. But he longs to be where to meet God. David mourns. He's mourning. Almost like if there's a death because of the oppression of the enemy. David feels God's rejection that God is going to give him punishment and wrath. Actually, if you look over to verse 7, look at verse 7. The Scripture says, Deep calleth unto the deep at the noise of thy water spouts. And thy waves and billows are gone over me. Now what does that mean? That's basically it alleges that God is ultimately responsible in His sovereignty for the oceans of the sorrows that's coming into His life. God is in control. He's sovereign. He's allowing this. But David is looking at it like, God, you are punishing me for this. 
because I'm, I'm, I'm away from meeting with you in the sanctuary. There's sorrow, there's trials, there's, there's hurt. There's, he's drowning in it, see? What a picture. It's almost like you see a tidal wave of deep, calleth into the deep and the noise of the water spouts and all the waves and the billows are just rushing over him. He's despondent. But he doesn't stay there. This is what I love about the Scriptures. Even though there was anguish and hurt and he was wounded, it seems that David... It seems that David lost all hope, but things changed. Notice fourth. We see that in verse 5, also in verse 11, and in chapter 43, verse 5, we see the praising soul. The praising soul. Let me go back to verse 5. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and who art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. The help of His countenance. I want to compare that with another verse. I believe Brother Keith, you, you touched on this at one time in the opening uh, exhortation, and I, I thought it was excellent. Notice the comparison in chapter 43, verse 5. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him who is the health of my countenance. Not the help, but the health of my, my countenance and my God. There is no mistake in Holy Scripture, is there? Everything is inspired of God. There's a reason why David changes it from the health of his countenance to the health of my countenance. Now this is beautiful. He's praising God now because, beloved, he's hoping in God there's hope. There's a living hope. That is the remedy. That living hope in God against the weakness of the flesh when trouble comes, when the storms come, when the billows tidal all over us, when we are in the hardships and the tidal waves of whatever we may face, there's always hope in God. Faith is His anchor. He assures Himself that God will help Him. I can't say that enough. God is our help, not man, not the armor of flesh. With His countenance, so He gives Him that God is His hope. I love what Psalm 121, 1 and 2 says. It's one of the, been one of my favorite scriptures down through the years. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord who made heaven and earth. God is the maker. God is the creator. Isaac Watts wrote a wonderful hymn. And it's interesting that this hymn was sung after we were invaded on that unforgettable, horrific day on 9-11 when we lost many, many civilians and lives by the two towers crashing 
and we we had and our nation had a day of prayer and they sung this oh god our help in ages past our hope for years to come our shelter from the stormy blast our eternal home under the shadow of thy throne still may we dwell secure sufficient is thy arm alone our our defense is sure before the hills and orders stood or earth received her frame from everlasting thou art God to endless years the same. A thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone short, short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its suns away. They fly forgotten as, dream, as a dream dies the opening day. O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, be Thou our God, while life shall last in our eternal home. That's based actually upon Psalm 90. The Psalm of Moses. Man's frailty. God's eternity. Beloved, salvation is ascribed to the countenance of God. The countenance of God. His countenance. That's what salvation is. The Mosaic blessing and the Aaronic blessing. The Lord make His face shine upon thee and Lord lift up His countenance upon thee and give thee peace. So the countenance of God. Don't you want to have God's countenance facing toward you? God's wonderful countenance. His face... His face turned toward His servants. The health, the salvation which comes from the Lord. The health of my countenance rather than the help of His countenance. First, He speaks of the help of His countenance. Then it goes, there's a change. It goes to health of my countenance. In other words, when He goes to... In other words, God in verse 5 in chapter 42, He's looking to God to help. That God will help. And then this turns around that He gives the health of my countenance and my God. So salvation comes. For God is our salvation. God's salvation comes forth from loving kindness. That God shows pity upon the sorely afflicted. The light of God's countenance illuminates the darkness of his countenance. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Verse 8, Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and in the night. His song shall be with me and my prayer unto the God of my life. Sounds like Job chapter 35, verse 10. But none saith, Where is God, my Maker, who giveth songs in the night? Songs in the night. God gives us a consoling grace to counteract those tears day and night. So we are enabled by His blessed Holy Spirit in such a meaningful way that He becomes our song. It's His song, isn't it? It's His song because He is our song. To exchange our tears for songs of praise. God my Maker giveth songs in the night. I love that. God, my Maker, giveth songs in the night. He gives us the songs in the night. Oh, may we look unto Jesus, the author and the finish of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider Him that endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. God is our great salvation in our song. Beloved, there's one who endured all of it, and that was Jesus so that we can have eternal life and drink of that ever-satisfying ever living water that Jesus gives. Aren't you glad? This reminds me of Matthew chapter 26 when Jesus, right after He instituted the Lord's Supper in verse 30, the Scripture says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now, I want you to think of this. This is the darkest hour in our Lord's life. He's, his soul is wrenched. He knows He's about to go to the cross. He's about to take the full fury of the wrath of God upon Himself because of our sins. It was a dark hour for Jesus. But yet, when we read the text, it says, when they had sung a hymn. He had a song of praise. Even in the darkest of our of, of the hour. And this is what we should be. In the dark times, that's when to sing. That's when to praise God. We may not understand it. It may not be natural. It's supernatural. But we need to praise God. And actually, if you read it, uh, more than likely that Jesus and the disciples read the Hallel, the Psalm 118. Psalm 118. I'm going to read just a little bit of it. And if you turn there, but it was a wonderful psalm, and it speaks of the Hallel. And this whole chapter speaks about the Lord's mercy. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, because His mercy endureth forever. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus and His disciples sung this? They had a time of prayer and time of praise. <coughs> and let Israel now say that His mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that His mercy endureth forever. Let them that now that fear the Lord say that His mercy endureth forever. I call upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? The Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations compass me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They compass me about, yea, they compass me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They compass me about like bees, they were quenched as the fire of thorns, for in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. Thou hast thrust sore at me that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song. And it's become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacle of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. I shall not die but live. I declare the works of the Lord. Man, amazing that Jesus sung this. The Lord hath chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over unto death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter, I will praise thee for thou hast heard me and art 
become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. And O Lord, I beseech thee, now send now, uh, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, which has showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even into the, into the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endureth forever. Praise God. Isaiah 61.3 To appoint unto those who mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He might be glorified. Hallelujah. Let me conclude with some questions. Beloved, what is your life's goal? Is it God and God alone? Are you willing to pursue and follow hard after God at any cost and at any road? Is knowing Jesus Christ and God and the only way we can know God is through Jesus Christ because He is the mediator and advocate. Is He your greatest goal in life? Are you as thirsty for God as David is? Are you thirsty for God, for the living waters that Jesus Christ provides in Himself more than anything else in this entire world? Is God Himself your great reward as He was for Abraham? Are you a thirst to taste and see that the Lord is good? And taste for yourself that that piercing sweetness of His infinite love for you only is satisfying. Do you long to be in His presence and delight in Him and gaze and behold the beauty of the Lord? You know, if, if we're going to answer that, it comes down to this and James says it. He says, basically, you draw nigh to God, He'll draw nigh to you. That comes right down to it, doesn't it? We must spend time for the, to the one that we love. We must make time. We have no excuse. If we truly love the one that loves us the most, we will spend time in His presence. And delight. And by the way, it's more than just a duty, isn't it? It's a delight. The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. So basically, He plants His desires within you as you delight in Him. Delight in God. Prayer should not be a hardship for us, a du- just a duty. It should be delightful. May our prayer and goal be God Himself. The pearl of great price in Jesus Christ be our goal for this new year. For myself and you. And may we have the same kind of desire as David did and the same kind of desire the Apostle Paul did when he said in Philippians that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Listen to what he says there. Not though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after. In other words, I, I have not arrived. Even though he knew God in a deep way, he still pursued hard after God. 
He says, but I follow after. I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which I also am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to, be, uh, uh, to have apprehended, but what, this one thing I do, there it is, this one thing, not all this list of all these other things, God is enough. This one thing I do, He does it. Obedience. Forgetting those things which are behind, because the year 2021 is gone. Now we've got 2022 above, uh, ahead of us. We go in the name of the Lord. And then He says this, Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before, I press. We've got to press. I press. Toward the mark. There's a mark for the prize. There's a prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, may this be our deepest prayer in life. My goal is God Himself. Not joy, nor peace, nor even blessing, but Himself, my God. It is His to lead me there, not mine, but His, at any cost, dear Lord, by any road. That basically means that we submit to God's way by bringing us to that goal. We submit to it. We submit to His Lordship. We submit, we draw nigh to God, and He draws nigh to us. God will never be real to us in a personal way until we come face to face with Him in Jesus Christ. We must spend time with God, press toward that mark. So I exhort you, beloved brothers and sisters, press by all the means of grace that God gives you to know God in a deeper way. And in all the world, as Oswald Chambers says, my God, there is none but Thee. There is none but Thee. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this time together. Lord, if there's changing to be done, the change needs to be on our part because You change not. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thank You, Lord, for You alone have the power to sanctify us holy. Thy word is truth. As the old Puritan said and prayed, Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision. The valley of vision. Where I live in the depths, but see Thee in the heights. Hemmed by, in the, by the mountains of sin, I behold Thy glory. Let me find Thy light in my darkness, Thy life in my death, Thy joy in my sorrow, Thy grace in my sin thy riches in my poverty, and thy glory in my valley. O Lord, may it be so that we may know Jesus Christ and Him crucified, buried and risen and now glorified. Everything else will be secondary. May help us, Lord, to seek first the kingdom of God and Your righteousness and all these other things will be added unto us. And we thank You for your grace that helps us in this. In Jesus' name, amen.